Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I'm Dr. Havila Stoll, a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia. I am joined by Dr. Aaron Wirth, who is a general pediatrician. Today, we will be discussing the evaluation of a common presentation in the pediatric clinic, abdominal pain. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wirth. Thanks for having me. So the differential diagnosis for abdominal pain is very broad and can be overwhelming since some causes can range from benign causes to very serious ones. That's right. And considering how big of a topic it is, we aren't going to be able to cover everything today. But we will focus on key aspects of the history and physical exam and then discuss some common causes of abdominal pain in the outpatient clinic setting. All right. We'll start with the clinical case to help guide our discussion. A six-year-old boy comes to the clinic for abdominal pain that has been going on for several months. Mom initially thought he was just trying to get attention, but she has been called by the school to come pick him up early at least once a week for the last month. So Havila, this is a typical patient you will see in the outpatient clinic. It appears that the pain has been ongoing and possibly getting worse since it's now affecting school attendance. Knowing how acute versus how chronic the pain is can help narrow down your differential diagnosis. How do you determine if it's chronic? So chronic abdominal pain is defined as intermittent or constant abdominal pain that is present for at least two months. What other information about the patient's abdominal pain would it be important to know? Knowing the location of the abdominal pain would be helpful. Yes, location. As they say in real estate, location, location, location. It's important to remember your anatomy since there are some key areas that can help narrow your differential diagnosis. Okay, so for the patient in our case, where is he having the pain? When asked about the pain, the boy just rubs his entire abdomen, but mostly in the middle, and states that it just hurts. Wow. Children may have difficult time localizing pain and describing what they're feeling as pain, especially those that are younger than five years old. Yes. I find that to be a very tricky question for young children. Dr. Worth, do you have any tips for our listeners on how to ask children about pain? The parent is likely to be able to answer some questions, such as how long the pain lasts, if the pain is constant or intermittent. But for an older child, you can ask specific questions, such as whether the pain feels like burning, cramping, or a stabbing pain. The younger child may not know the difference between these sensations, though. So a very helpful tool is the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale, which can help you determine the severity of the abdominal pain. This is a scale that shows a series of six faces, ranging from a happy face, indicating no pain at all, to a crying face, indicating the worst pain. Let's keep moving on with your clinic patient. What else can you tell me about his abdominal pain? The child complains of nausea occasionally, but no vomiting. His appetite has decreased, but he is still able to eat. Mom does not think he has lost any weight. Otherwise, he's been growing and developing well without any chronic problems. Great. A thorough review of systems can provide some key clues. For example, if the child has fever, think about an infectious cause. Nausea and vomiting? Also think infectious, but may also be something going on around the upper GI tract, if not acute. If diarrhea is present with the abdominal pain, again, think about an infectious cause or some food intolerance. But if more chronic, think about conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease, if there are other concerning symptoms such as weight loss, blood in the stool, and fatigue. Remember also that abdominal pain is not always a gastrointestinal issue. Children with a lower lobe pneumonia or a genitourinary complaint, such as a urinary tract infection, pyelonephritis, or pelvic inflammatory disease may also complain of abdominal pain. If the patient's female, make sure to ask about a menstrual history if age-appropriate. And since we are talking about children with abdominal pain, let's not forget about foreign body ingestion, including magnets or batteries. That's right. That's a very important thing to remember. 
So, now that we've discussed a focused history of his abdominal pain, let's move on to the physical exam. Dr. Worth, how do you approach the physical exam? The physical exam can be very challenging, especially with a young child. So first, I observe the child in the room. A helpful tool that can be used as soon as you walk in the room is the FLAC scale, which stands for face, legs, activity, cry, and consolability. Observe the facial expressions of the child. Is the child smiling or grimacing in pain? Observe movement or lack of movement of their legs. Observe activity. Are they screaming and crying, moaning and whimpering, or happy and playful? How easily are they consoled by their caregivers? This scale was designed for children from two months to seven years or individuals that are unable to communicate their pain. Each of these five categories are scored on a scale from zero to two with the maximum score of 10 that indicates severe or discomfort or pain. Those are good tips. You should always approach abdominal pain systematically. While this may seem like basic information to some seasoned providers, it may still be helpful to review some of the key parts of the abdominal exam. It is important to position the child to optimize your exam by making sure the patient is lying flat on their back with their knees flexed. This helps the abdomen relax. Havila, what are some important things to think about when you're auscultating the abdomen? We need to listen for the bowel sounds in each of the four quadrants. The bowel sounds may be hyperactive if a patient is having vomiting or diarrhea because the contents are moving through the GI tract very quickly. Good job. What if you don't hear bowel sounds at all? If I don't hear bowel sounds or hear a high-pitched tinkling sound, I would be worried about lack of peristalsis or concerns for an obstruction. This indicates an urgent referral to the emergency department for surgical evaluation. That's right. Let's move on to percussion. Percussion assesses for the different densities within the abdomen. It can be helpful to estimate the size of the liver and the spleen, or to evaluate for a mass within the abdomen. Great. Let's go back to our clinical case. What's the abdominal exam like? So the child is able to lie comfortably on the exam table, but grimaces when you palpate his epigastrium and over the umbilicus. There is no rebound tenderness or guarding. This is why the physical exam is so important. You've just identified key areas of pain that the child wouldn't have been able to tell you otherwise. So were there any masses palpated? The abdomen is a bit distended, but soft, easily compressible, and there is some palpable stool over the left lower quadrant, but no masses. So you have localized pain in the epigastric and periumbilical regions, as well as palpated stools. What are your top differential diagnoses based on this history and exam so far? So even though the stomach mainly lies in the left upper quadrant of the abdomen, the gastroesophageal junction is more medial than the body of the stomach. So pain in the epigastric region may be related either to the stomach or the esophagus due to gastroesophageal reflux. Pain in the periumbilical region with palpable stool makes us think of constipation. And most pediatric gastroenterologists will say that chronic abdominal pain is constipation unless proven otherwise. That's a great point. So your top differential diagnosis in this case would be gastroesophageal reflux and constipation. Good job. Remember that abdominal pain may be due to more than one cause at the same time. Oh, and don't forget about the genital exam, especially in a male. You don't want to miss a testicular torsion in a male. That's a surgical emergency. Good advice. I would not want to miss that. So let's take a moment to discuss about gastroesophageal reflux when it presents as abdominal pain. Acid reflux can present in all age groups. All infants have some degree of gastroesophageal reflux, and this will improve as they get older and are able to stay upright independently. If the reflux is causing signs of severe discomfort or affecting the weight of the infant, then you may consider thickening formula or begin a two to four week trial of a protein hydrolysate formula. For breastfed infants, elimination of cow's milk and mom's diet can be considered if you're worried about a milk protein intolerance. You can also refer to a pediatric gastroenterologist. What about acid reflux in older children? 
In an older child, especially those that have never experienced heartburn before, the sensation of reflux can be interpreted as abdominal pain or chest pain. Acid reflux pain typically occurs approximately 15 to 30 minutes after a meal. A food diary can be helpful since certain foods can exacerbate reflux symptoms. Acidic foods such as orange juice or tomato sauce and spicy foods can weaken the muscle tone of the lower esophageal sphincter and worsen reflux. Other associated symptoms including chronic cough, sour taste in the back of the throat, and frequent regurgitation of food should be reviewed. Hmm. What's the treatment for gastroesophageal reflux in an older child? For these older children, acid suppression medications for four to eight weeks can be prescribed and monitored for symptom resolution. If this fails, referral to a gastroenterologist for further evaluation should be made. Okay. Now let's go back to our patient in clinic with pain in the periumbelical region and the stool that's palpable in the left lower quadrant. So what about constipation in this patient? Um, How do we know that it's not just a normal stool versus abdominal pain that's due to constipation? That's a great question, Havila. Abdominal pain caused by constipation is due to retention of fecal material anywhere in the colon. While abdominal pain associated with constipation is usually poorly localized by history, if the child has a large stool burden, stool may be palpated on exam. The child might also have tenderness in the left lower quadrant since stool can get caught at the bend of the sigmoid colon. Dr. Wirth, what are some key questions to ask if we do suspect constipation? Specifically, you want to ask about the frequency and the consistency of stool. Remember that a constipated child can have a bowel movement every day, but usually these children describe stools as large, hard, bulky, and difficult and painful to pass. Constipation can be managed with a variety of over-the-counter medications such as polyethylene glycol, better known as Miralax. For more information regarding evaluation and management of constipation, check out the constipation podcast episode by Drs. Aruk and Yang. Oh, that's a great one. Okay, let's move on to another clinical case. A 12-year-old girl comes to the clinic with two days of abdominal pain. Her parents are concerned that she's feeling nauseated and has vomited at least three times since she woke up this morning. She does not feel like eating anything due to the nausea and abdominal pain, but has been able to take some small sips of a sports drink. Any fever? The parents state that she has felt warm to the touch, but they didn't take a temperature at home. Her temperature in the clinic here is 38.1 degrees Celsius. When you walk into the exam room, she's lying in a fetal position on the exam table, and she appears pale, but she is able to sit up on her own. She's unable to localize her abdominal pain. So you have two days of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, and documented fever in clinic. What's your differential diagnosis? Well, the patient has generalized abdominal pain. Since fever is present, and it's only been two days of symptoms, I'm thinking about infectious causes such as gastroenteritis, urinary tract infection, or pyelonephritis. Other more serious causes could be an acute appendicitis, a peritonitis, or ovarian torsion, since this is in a female, or a kidney stone. Good job. A very common cause of abdominal pain in children is a urinary tract infection. Urinary tract infections are one of the most common bacterial infections in childhood, accounting from 5 to 14% of pediatric emergency department visits. Most urinary tract infections are due to ascending infections from the fecal flora, which colonizes the perineum and enters the bladder through the urethra. If the bacteria ascends from the bladder into the renal parenchyma, then acute pyelonephritis can occur. Acute pyelonephritis may be characterized by abdominal, back, or flank pain, fever, malaise, nausea, and vomiting. Occasionally, diarrhea may be present, but fever may be the only manifestation. Oh, wow. That could be really tricky. For older children, asking about urinary frequency, dysuria, hematuria, or enuresis in the toilet-trained child can be helpful in diagnosing a urinary tract infection. 
So if we have a high clinical suspicion for a urinary tract infection, do we still need to order urine studies or can we just treat this empirically? We should all practice antibiotic stewardship due to the increasing resistance of antibiotics. A clean catch point of care urinalysis is easy to obtain in the office to confirm your clinical suspicion. For those children that are not toilet trained, the child will need to be catheterized to obtain your sample. Havala, pop quiz. How do you interpret nitrites and leukocyte esterase on a urinalysis? A urinalysis that is positive for nitrites indicates the presence of a bacteria that reduces nitrate. That's right. A positive test for nitrites is highly specific for bacterial infection, but a negative test does not exclude infection since this test has a low sensitivity. The presence of leukocyte esterase in the urine indicates pyuria, or white blood cells, in the urine that is really common with urinary tract infections. Right again. Remember that the presence of leukocyte esterase is more sensitive for a urinary tract infection, but it has a lower specificity compared to nitrites, so there may be false positives. A urine that is positive for both leukocyte esterase and nitrites, in addition to positive clinical history, would make me more confident of a diagnosis of a urinary tract infection. I agree. Remember that a urine culture is necessary for confirmation for a urinary tract infection and to determine appropriate antibiotic therapy. Urinary tract infections are mainly caused by colonic bacteria. The majority of cases of urinary tract infections are due to E. coli, which accounts for over 50% of UTIs in children. Treatment can be initiated as an outpatient based on susceptibilities. Okay, Havila, what if the patient in our case was having multiple episodes of diarrhea in addition to her symptoms, but no abnormal urinary symptoms? Lots of diarrhea? I would think that the child has symptoms of acute gastroenteritis. That's right. Many children with gastroenteritis will have abdominal pain in addition to other symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and lack of appetite. There may be a low-grade fever reported or no fever at all. If the child has vomiting, emesis usually appears to be the color of the food from the child's last meal or yellow in color, representing gastric contents. Havila, what if the child's having green or bloody emesis? If the emesis is described as green in color, your antenna should go up, thinking about bilious emesis and a possible surgical issue. If there's blood in the emesis, this could represent a GI bleed that needs to be addressed quickly. That's right. The same set of questions should be asked about the diarrhea as well, especially about the blood in the stool, as this can be a diagnostic clue for certain bacterial sources of gastroenteritis when it appears acutely. Dr. Worth, I always have trouble remembering all the bacteria that can cause a gastroenteritis. Do you have any tips to help remember? A quick mnemonic for the most common organisms that cause bloody diarrhea. Just remember that bloody diarrhea is sexy diarrhea. <laughs> what? Sexy? <laughs> yes, spelled S-E-C-S-Y, which stands for Salmonella, E. coli, specifically enterohemorrhagic and enterotoxigenic E. coli, Campylobacter, Shigella, and Yersinia enterocolitica, also known as pseudoappendicitis. But remember, viruses are the most common cause of acute gastroenteritis. How do you treat acute gastroenteritis? Most cases of acute gastroenteritis, no matter the organism, are self-limited and can be managed in the outpatient setting with aggressive oral hydration. When would you suggest that we should consider admitting a child to the hospital for acute gastroenteritis? So children are usually admitted for gastroenteritis when they are unable to maintain their hydration status orally and continue to show signs of worsening dehydration. This is more common in younger children less than one year of age and those with chronic medical problems. Okay, so we've talked about gastroesophageal reflux, constipation, urinary tract infections, and acute gastroenteritis as common causes of abdominal pain in children. 
But since we are talking about abdominal pain, I always worry about serious emergencies. Yes, we can't discuss abdominal pain without addressing red flags. Appendicitis is something that all physicians should fear missing with any patient that presents with abdominal pain. Appendicitis is another surgical emergency, since an inflamed appendix can progress to perforation and peritonitis. What specific things would make you suspect appendicitis in a child with abdominal pain? Traditionally, these children will have acute abdominal pain that comes on suddenly. The pain may start periumbilically, but for radiating down to the right lower quadrant. Children will have decreased appetite and may have nausea and vomiting. Fever is relatively common. Havila, what features of the physical exam are important in evaluating for appendicitis? I tend to think of that classic right lower quadrant tenderness on palpation. That's right. And the pain may become worse when releasing the pressure, which is known as rebound tenderness. There are some established signs that you can perform on physical exam that might be helpful. Okay, Havila, you ready for another pop quiz? I'm ready. All right, let's review some specific abdominal physical exam findings. What is McBurney's sign? This is the tenderness with deep palpation of the McBurney's point, which is the point found midway between the umbilicus and the right anterior iliac spine. A positive sign represents concerns for appendicitis. Great. What is it called when the patient has pain when the hip is passively extended or actively flexed against resistance? That's the psoas sign. Both the psoas sign and the obturator sign, which is pain on internal rotation of the flexed right hip, are signs that may indicate peritonitis or an inflamed appendix. What about if the patient had pain in the right lower quadrant when palpating the left lower quadrant? That would be the Ravsing sign. That's also a red flag with appendicitis. That's right. And don't forget the heel tap sign. This is one of my favorites, where the patient lays supine and you tap the bottom of the heel of the right foot while slightly elevated off the table. If this causes abdominal tenderness, that suggests peritonitis and possibly appendicitis too. Great job, Havila. Thanks. Remember, if the appendicitis has progressed to perforation, the child may have a small decrease in pain before it progresses to diffuse peritonitis. What additional physical exam finding would you find with peritonitis? With peritonitis, the child would likely have an abdomen that is very firm and painful to the touch, with pain that worsens with any movement. That's right. This is an acute surgical abdomen. Don't forget to check vital signs for elevated heart rate and fever. If you have these findings, you should initiate immediate referral to the pediatric emergency room and consultation with the pediatric surgeon. This is another surgical emergency until proven otherwise. What about getting imaging in labs for an appendicitis? So labs such as a complete blood count and inflammatory markers and imaging such as ultrasound and abdominal CT can be helpful in this case. But again, if you're in clinic and you have a high clinical suspicion for appendicitis, don't wait for the labs and imaging. Go ahead and send the child to the emergency department for further evaluation and management. Yes, very important. Wow, we've covered quite a bit of material from the more benign causes to acute surgical emergencies. So, Dr. Worth, in summary, abdominal pain is a common complaint in the outpatient setting with a very broad differential diagnosis. However, by following a systematic approach, including asking those key questions and performing a thorough physical exam will help narrow down your differential and avoid missing those life-threatening causes of abdominal pain. You've summed it up pretty well. Dr. Worth, thank you so much for being here and sharing how you approach a child with abdominal pain. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. 
clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.